0: You may remember a while back, we talked about the Masonic history of Washington, DC. Tonight, we're gonna recap a little bit, but we're gonna talk more specifically about Freemasonry and the White House. We have an excellent brother coming on this evening that's gonna tell us all about that story and walk us through the fascinating history. So stick with us. We have an amazing episode lined up for you right after this on Historical Light. Welcome back to the Historical Light Masonic Podcast
1: dedicated to illuminate our past and bring our Masonic history to light since 2016. enjoy the show.
0: Good evening and welcome back to Historical Light, an independent Masonic show focused on the historical events and aspects within Freemasonry. I'm your host, Brother Alex Powers, and thrilled to have back with us once again, Brother Chris Rooley. How you doing, brother? Hey, Alex. How are you, brother? Not bad at all. It's a total pleasure to have you back on the show, man. I had such a great time talking to you last time. You're a source of knowledge and I hear you've got something hitting the market around this, uh, this topic we're talking about tonight.
1: Yeah. Hit the market, uh, hitting the market. Uh, uh, we, the the book, the white house and the Freemasons was published through McCoy. We, uh, got the initial print run done. We thought, okay, we'll get enough books to maybe last us till December. And, uh, it, the book got sold out in the first three weeks of, I think it was September Fantastic. or early October. So we're waiting for the next batch to come in and to sell out again. So we'll see.
0: That's amazing, brother. I'm so proud of you. So it Thank sounds you. like a few guys out there have realized, you know, what the heck you're talking about?
1: <laughs> well, I I haven't convinced everyone yet, but yeah, maybe one or two, maybe one or two brothers still worth convincing. Then perhaps by going on this podcast and talking with you i'll convince maybe one or more people
0: heck yeah man <laughs> thrilled to have you on and more Thank thrilled you. to uh dive into this topic with you but for those that may have not caught the last episode with you may not know you in person shame on them but can we get a little <laughs> backstory of who you are and your background in freemasonry
1: sure my name is chris Ruley. i am a masonic historian uh researcher and and writer My focus is on early American Freemasonry uh, with more of a more of a narrowed focus, perhaps even more of that on political sort of American Masonic political interaction, political theory, the White House, the president's um, politics, national, local politics in Washington, D.C., I sort of run the gamut. I joke and say when I do presentations live or, you know, other presentations, I usually say, we usually don't talk about politics and religion. And so my specialty is talking about Masonic politics and religion. So I I love to talk, but I love to discuss it. So uh, originally from New Jersey, came down to Washington, D.C., joined Freemasonry through the District of Columbia, and uh, I'm a member of uh, Masonic bodies in Washington, D.C. and in Alexandria, Virginia.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. So we usually uh, have a couple icebreakers to get to know you on a personal level, uh, well, kind of touching in, and we did this last time you were on, but again, for those that may have not caught that and uh, or remembered, what is it that brought you into Freemasonry to start with? Did you have family history or how did you come about this?
1: I had a uh, music teacher back in high school who was a Mason, didn't really know anything about it, didn't, uh, you know, it, it was at the time, I think, um, if, I'm, if my memory serves me right, it was around the time when na- um, National Treasure, uh, the, uh, the Dan Brown books were coming out. And so there was this big, in- this sort of confluence. People were, you know, masonry seemed to be everywhere for a little bit. And so I, I thought it was part of that wave. And so I asked him, you know, what's, well, what I, I noticed was he would wear his Masonic ring only like once every, you know, the first Wednesday of, you know, and I I'd had class with him every day. And so on the first week of Wednesdays or something, he would wear it and I'd be like, what, what is that thing? And he told me it was about, you know, it's a Masonic ring. And I thought the worst, I was like, what does that mean? Is he part of the, some weird religion or cult or, you know, does, does he know, you know? And uh, so I, got, I, I asked him all these questions. And then, you know, over time he, you know, he was like, when you're ready, when you're older enough, when you, when you, you know, when you're thinking about it, let me know. And so over time I sort of went off, did my professional thing, came to DC starting my new job. Didn't really know a lot of people and through, you know, I was thinking about it and I thought, Oh, you know, I remember, you know, Mr. So-and-so was talking about Freemasonry. I might as well look it up. And so I found a lodge in DC started attending regular meetings, applied for membership, became a Mason, and then, you know, went on my way to, you know, my interest in Masonic research and history. So it, it all went, it all started through that process.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, it, it, it makes me wonder because the part of the country that you live in is just yeah. overrun with so much powerful Masonic history. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, you know, the rest of us throughout the country, we we deal with this issue of masonry where people just like don't realize we exist. Do you guys have that issue in the DC area?
1: I think because of popular culture, and I mean, I guess the book doesn't help because I'm 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 sort of talking about and discussing these themes, but I think in popular culture, I think people see the District of Columbia as an inherently Masonic place. There's beautiful buildings, there's headquarters of national organizations like the Scottish Rite, and the Order of the Eastern Star, there's the Alexander Memorial across the river, you know, in Alexandria, or the George Washington Masonic Memorial across in Alexandria. And so I think there's, a, there, you know, people come from Masonic Week, for example. So there's just a lot of stuff that happens in the District of Columbia. And so um, I'm a little bit more prone to it. You see a lot of people, uh, and then and also, you know, there are Masons that work in the government, there are Masons that are, you know, maybe they were Masons back in their states, and now they moved to DC temporarily to work in the government or in the Pentagon or in politics. And so you sort of get this hodgepodge of different, you know, it's a transient town, not a lot of people live in the town and then stay in DC. But right. you, you sort of get a, a good mix of different Masons that have been in the area, and then are visiting. So it's, it's certainly very active. I'd say that's
0: fantastic. Yeah I, yeah. I did get the opportunity to go there once for uh brother, Joe Martinez, uh, yes, Joe. installation into, into the East out there. Um, but you know, especially being a history nerd, that's one of those towns you could spend a month in and still not see probably a third of the stuff. So,
1: oh yeah. yeah oh can't. yeah. I I sort of always feel bad when people come into the district and it's a Thursday and they're like, hey, we're only here for the weekend. And I said, shoot, the House of the Temple is closed on the weekend on Fridays. You know, I wish you could come in. So I, I, I strongly urge anyone who's coming to D.C. to take a week or two before and just reach out to either the House of the Temple or the memorial staff over in Alexandria just to confirm, you know, that they're open and available to meet you.
0: Most definitely. Most definitely. You know, when we, uh, when we got in town there, we, we got in on a Thursday and I believe mm. the temple was open that day. And, you know, I was like, oh, this is my one chance. We're going to do yeah. it. And, uh, brother Brad drew from Kentucky. If he's watching, buddy, it's because of you, he had <laughs> texted me. He's like, Hey man, don't, don't go to the temple today. I'm getting in tomorrow, and I want to go with you. I'm like, ah, oh, perfect. Oh, so, no, with me, yeah, exactly. Oh, no. We go down there Friday morning. We park like, I don't know, a few blocks back. Like thirty-five bucks for parking. Oh, all, yeah. all the way up there. Closed. <laughs>
1: oh no! Dang it.
0: Yeah, but it was okay. Uh, my wife's from Ecuador, and she hopped on Google Maps, and we found out that the uh, embassy of Ecuador is just down the street. And that was that was a really, really cool tour to do while we were there. So cool. we, we made the best of it and saw some really cool stuff there.
1: Yeah, and there's also, I mean, so much stuff to do in DC oh. outside of masonry. So you know, I'm sure oh, yeah. you know, Smithsonian and all that fun stuff.
0: Well, I want to give a quick thanks to everybody that's tuning in on the Facebook side and over on YouTube. We've got a bunch of live coming in. And of course, thank you to my wife, Yvette, for sharing this out, getting us in front of everyone on the groups. Um, And one quick thing before we dive into the meat and potatoes of this episode, we got to give a quick shout out, that's the wrong screen, dummy, Uh, to our friends and uh, supporters over at Patreon. If you guys like what we do here, we've been uh, doing strictly Masonic history and preserving the history of Freemasonry since 2016. If you want to see us continue and grow, you can jump over to the website, historicallight.com support, and you can support us through Patreon. We've got several awesome levels there, and you get some really cool Patreon perks that go along with that. So we'd appreciate your support. And with that, Brother, let's talk about some DC history. Now, I think wow. you've got some uh, some slides and stuff to share if you want, uh, but let's let's hop in and hear your story.
1: Sure. Um, let's uh, let's see. Do these? Well, you know what? We can. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Um, I hope everyone can see this. I can certainly see it on my end. My the the impetus for this book, which is really called "The Freemasons, the White House, and the Freemasons," came from started about five years ago. So while I was chatting and visiting, you know, your podcast, I think it was last year or two years ago, I was really knee deep into the weeds of this book that I've been working on, which basically catalogs every Masonic interaction with the presidents of the United States and the Freemasons. And I, wow. when I started working on this project, the best research I could find, right? So the best, you know, the best research that's been printed or published out there probably captured around 150 or so activities in their book. It was well-documented, well-researched, of course. And so, you know, the the five years ago when I, I, I didn't think about this book five years ago, but what happened is when I was serving as the Grand Historian and Grand Librarian of the District of Columbia, I would get requests from the Grand Master, Grand Lodge officers, or just really anyone, right? They'd send in emails and say, hey, Chris, we're planning on doing some Masonic activity or maybe doing something at the Memorial or the Smithsonian. Do we have any Masonic history on, you know, our interaction with the Memorial or with, you know, the Washington monument. And so I'd go through and I'd compile a, a, a resource or whatever other research question was, and I'd send it over. Well, for my reference, right, for my benefit, I started to write down that list, right? So, oh, yeah, there's, you know, I, I found maybe 30 or so in that first year of me serving in that role, maybe 30 or 40 Masonic interactions with between the presidents and the Freemasons. You know, dinners, initiations, meetings, letters, correspondence, stuff like that. And then over time, as more questions came in and more different kinds of questions and more and more research that I was working on, publishing papers, all that stuff, I'd find more of these things. And so about three years into the project, I thought to myself, man, this could be actually a really good research paper. Maybe I could submit to the Phil Lakeys or to Heritum or something like that. And then, you know, by the time I got into year three or four, I realized, you know, <laughs> there's so much stuff here. I've already, you know made a 300-400 page book or there you know the 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 research the list grew from 150 activities to about you know 400 and so in my fifth year i effectively said you know what there's so much good research here this really deserves to be a book engaged with a publisher started working on really cutting this down uh because it went from a 600 page and in fact when i submitted (laughs) when i submitted my original manuscript to the publisher Uh, you know, the publisher looked at me and said, Chris, this is great, but cut this down because no one wants to read a 600 page book. (laughs) And I've got so many great Mason, you know, great historian masons, great researchers out there that also looked at the book and said, I just don't think people are going to read all this much. And it's great. You did a fantastic job in terms of the research. What you should do is cut this down, make it consumable. And so what I did for a second pass was I said, okay, well, I want to write this book for two people. I want to write this book for my wife because I wanted her to be able to open this book and read it and really understand in simple, plain English, what the role and what the interaction with the engagement with the fraternity was with the of the United States. Cause it was so interesting and unique. And the other person I wanted to, to write this for was a brother like yourself for any brother out there in the jurisdiction or, or actually in the United States, I should say, who is curious about the information, who wants to learn about the Presidents of the United States and the Freemasons, but doesn't have the time to go out there and find all these primary resources and newspapers and things that I went to. And so I wanted this to be not just a book that someone can crack open and read, but the back half of the book, for example, really is an appendix. And Brent Morris loves, you know, he he. when I sent it over to him, he was like, you basically, I'm paying for the book because I like the appendices. Because what I did in the appendices is is I I wrote down as much information about, you know, Masonic detail that I could find about the presidents of the United States and the Masonic presidents. I went through all their interactions. I went through everything. And so the appendix is basically a list, a table with facts and figures that you can spend your whole entire life working on and reviewing and analyzing. And so it's been a great, you know, it's been a great, pleasure writing the book, engaging the book, because I get to have these conversations with people and also share stories that you may have not even heard of or may not have seen. So here's a picture, for example, of the Knights Templar in front of the White House. I found this photograph on a postcard that was just on eBay for $9 and you know 99 cents. And it was just one of these things where I'm like, where did this come from? Where I, I've never seen this before. I also had, don't have a record of it, and so I had to run into the you know newspapers and 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 proceedings to find this type of information. And so I was able to finally track down when this event occurred, and so there was a lot of you know there was a lot of diving into resources that you may not necessarily use or have the time to do. It really did take about five years worth of research to compile this information. So I'm I'm sort of you know I'm pleased that resources like this exists. That's fantastic. I'll go to, I'll, I'll go to the next slide now. I'm not going to, you know, you and I are not going to sit here and go through 450 events. But what I wanted to do was maybe perhaps find four or five little interesting pieces of information, right? So little, little, I synthesized some general themes and ideas. And so I think the first one is what I realized going through this research, you know, year four, year five into the research was, the field of Masonic research related to the Presidents of the United States is still very nascent. What I mean to say is, you know, the first book on, or the most definitive, not the first, but the most definitive work on George Washington was just published one or two years ago. Mark Tabert did, you know, Deserving Brother, the definitive work on Washington. Washington's been dead for 200 plus years. You're telling me in 2022, You've just published the definitive work on Washington. I joke with Tabert and everybody else that, well, I look forward to Teddy Roosevelt's definitive work on Freemasonry or someone working on Teddy Roosevelt's definitive work in 2075 or 2089, <laughs> whenever, whenever exactly. that happens, right? Because, because that field of Masonic research, again, is just so nascent. You'd think the topic's been covered. You'd yeah. think every piece of this topic's been covered. In fact, you know, when I went to another presentation, there was a brother that slumped in his chair when he found out that the presentation that evening was me talking about the president, he goes, "I've already seen everything associated with president. I don't, you know, here's another presentation on George Washington." I said, "Okay, well, let's go through this presentation, and I guarantee you'll find something new that you haven't seen or, or, or experienced." And so, one of again, this idea that the, the topic is so nascent that there's so much information that hasn't been covered, and so yeah. half of the interactions that I found, right? I told you the best interaction that i can find was 150 interactions already pre-published well i got about 450 Uh, 40 percent of those have never been published in masonic periodical masonic research masonic publication they were in newspapers they were in diaries they were in correspondences and so here's an example of a poster that i found in the harry truman library that i i got permission to republish and so this is a poster that a brother wanted to give to Harry Truman during his years in office as president, or perhaps after his term of office. It doesn't technically say when he received it. Um, but this, I think, encapsulates some of the issues that I found while I was doing the research. First thing you'll notice, well, bear in mind, you know, obviously, um, Gerald Ford is not on this because Gerald Ford wasn't president yet, so that's the obvious you know problem. But look at the top, two, or top row. You'll have Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and Jackson. Now, those are five brothers. Two of those individuals were never masons. But the telephone game, this tradition or oral history of, oh, but of course Thomas Jefferson was a mason because I read in a book somewhere, or I saw it in a minute book somewhere that Thomas Jefferson participated in Masonic activities. James James Madison as well. There's they, there was a claim that James Madison was also a Mason. Here's the evidence to prove it. And and really unfortunately going through my research, you didn't I didn't find any evidence that Thomas Jefferson was a Freemason. I didn't find evidence that James Madison was a Freemason. What did I find? I found letters and discussion topics where Jefferson and Madison discussed Freemasonry sure, but that didn't mean that they were Masons. In fact, Jefferson there was the only reference to Jefferson being associated to Freemasonry was a historian was able to find get access to one of the lodge records of a lodge that was conducting a cornerstone laying ceremony in Virginia where Thomas Jefferson participated as a, a former president of the United States. Now the way the lodge secretary wrote it he said you know the lot, and I'm paraphrasing here but the lodge opened you know opened its session formed a procession, went to the site of the cornerstone ceremony, laid the cornerstone, and then the dignitaries and everyone else returned back to the lodge and closed down the lodge. And so the historian goes, aha, here's evidence of Thomas Jefferson returning back to the lodge hall and closing the lodge hall with the masons in the room. Now to you, I'd say, okay, well, that's not really evidence that Thomas Jefferson was a Mason. And, in fact, the way that other Masons corresponded with presidents, for example, you know, so, for example, George Washington, when someone engaged with George Washington, they often said honorable or, you know, respected or his excellency and brother. Well, there's no mention of Freemasonry in Thomas Jefferson's exchanges with other Masons. Prominent Masons as well. You'd think that these prominent men would know that Thomas Jefferson was a Mason. There's a theory or a claim that he was initiated in France. No record of it. But these other historians played the telephone game. Well, he may have not been a Mason, but if he were a Mason, he was probably raised here. And then that over time, that story evolves to, well, this historian claims that he was initiated here. Now, he didn't say that, but the telephone game plays. And so that was one of the issues that I was dealing with, with conducting this research. You go If you go online, right, well, I hope you don't go online right now, but later on after this podcast, go online, type in Freemasonry and the Presidents of the United States, and you will find maybe 40% of those records are incomplete, incorrect, or just providing you not even relevant information. They make claims that these people are so-and-so. And so that was one of the major issues. And I know Tabard also experienced this when he was creating his Washington book, where there were like dozens and dozens of iterations of these stories that we basically, I could not include in the book because I couldn't sure. verify them. So that, that was one of those issues.
0: Well, I think, you yeah, know, right. as you put it there, like with the telephone game, masonry, yeah. it, it's still guilty of it to this day. But I mean, you Absolutely. think generations of guilt that we have there, masons love their history. Yes. And, and they like to embellish a little bit and yeah. you go from <laughs> one meeting to another. And, well, this guy said this and. Yeah, we, we've, uh, we've claimed a lot of history. <laughs>
1: yeah, a- a- Alex, I- I've, I've been in a meeting where I'm doing my presentation and after the presentation a really well-mannered brother comes up to me and says, brother, really, thank you so much. This was a great presentation. Now you mentioned Thomas Jefferson. Well, wait a minute. There's a document in a French library somewhere at the time. And I said, show me the document. I'm what happy kind of to, yep. you know, I'm happy to remember that's, that's how Masonic research should be. Just like any academic research. I provide some insights, I provide some, you know, uh, uh, something to work on and to review, and then someone else can take it and modify it and change it and advance the field. But right now, if we don't have these records, if we don't make, you know, there's also the claim about Lincoln. Well, Lincoln's petition is being held in a safe somewhere and, you know, in, 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 in some lodge. Great. Show us the petition. It's been a hundred years. Show right. me this petition, this glorious signed petition that's never been submitted. Show me it. I'd love to see it, and I'd love to understand more about it. But until then, I can't use that as evidence to claim that Lincoln sure. was amazing. You know, for sure.
0: Yeah. You know, we've had so many of these. Well, especially going into our our modern era here, uh yeah. It's Google or nothing, right? And everyone that wants to do research is, well, let me look it up real quick. And if there's not a quick ready resource, well, we either embellish or it didn't exist. That's right. You've got so much gray area, but there's two sides of it too, which is the exciting thing is yeah. You've got a lot of guys saying, well, I've I've heard that this exists there and it may or may not, but sometimes they also may. And that's the exciting thing is there's actually still so much stuff out there. Exactly. In this era, especially like with what we're pushing with Kansas Lodge Research and so many other jurisdictions are getting into this now. I know uh, the George Washington Memorial is doing it with the digitizing right. uh, and preservation okay. and that. We've got so much more material that is hitting uh, the ability for modern researchers and especially with AI and all this coming into play. I think we're about to see a resurgence of Masonic research like we've never seen before. I think it's going to be exciting for the truthful dots that we're going to see connect. That's right. Uh, once, you know, with brothers like you that are diving in, it's going to be amazing to really see the the grand picture that comes out of it all.
1: Yeah, and I, I'll even tell you what, brother Alex. In fact, I think because of COVID, what COVID did was it forced presidential libraries and a lot of these government agencies to really push stuff and put stuff online and digitize right. stuff. And so one of the key things that I mentioned in my book in my introduction, as well as the research that I was doing was I went through every single presidential library and I pulled anything associated to Freemasonry in those presidential libraries. And many of those libraries are now moving towards digitizing these records. And so if a Mason, if a, not, excuse me, if a, if a president, I jokingly say, if a president spat on a Mason and it was recorded somewhere in a presidential library, I probably have it recorded written down somewhere. Because I went through every single presidential library to the point where I think some of those librarians don't even want to see me anymore or hear or receive an email from me anymore because I bother them so much about it. But that's the point. The point is to pull these resources from primary sources. Yeah. So t- take, take another you know, example for, for, for you know, um, George Washington. The letters of George Washington are printed. In, you know, or not printed, transcribed, excuse me, online. You can go through them yourself, you can dive through them. And so one of the things that I was doing because everything is online, that you can go and research it. I, I really wanted to attack the question of what was George Washington's legacy. Now, Mark Tabbert will tell you, and, and Mark, and I agree with Mark Tabbert to a certain extent that. It's, his, it's George Washington's values, it's his principles, the way that he led his life as well as how he conducted himself in public that makes him a man that we should respect and venerate. Completely understand. That does not answer the question, what was George Washington's contribution to Freemasonry? Here's my belief that what is George Washington's contribution to Freemasonry. I believe that if the first president of the United States was not a Freemason we may have seen a different version. You know, it's like the Marvel where you have different timelines. I think the timeline would have branched off and we'd have seen a different we would have seen a different type of Freemasonry in the public. If John Adams, who did not like Freemasonry, was not was became elected first president of the United States, I think we might have seen Masonry relegated to something else. I I can't. Obviously, there's no way of telling what it is. That's an interesting thought, though. Here's my here's my rationale. How do you, how do you, you you're the first president of the United States, how do you engage with a fraternity or a social group like the Freemasons when you've never set up the standards for being president, right? You're president. You're setting up, you're setting the precedent. You're setting the standard for how you engage with them. So Washington was very smart in that he engaged with them respectfully. He acknowledged the good things that he did. Sure, you can, you can, there's a list of, all the activities that Washington participated in could fit on one page. But, but the point of that is that I give George Washington credit where I believe his contribution to Freemasonry was that he gave it respect. He found opportunities to participate in the public. Po- so for example, if you've never had a cornerstone laying ceremony and invited the president, how would you know? What is the process? What sure. is the process to speaking to a president, writing to a president about Freemasonry? What is, the, what is the etiquette and protocol about laying a cornerstone or inviting the president to attend? What do you talk about? How do you talk about? Where does he sit? Where does he stand? Does he participate? Does he wear an apron as president of the United States? All these things Washington set as a standard. And then Masons and non-Masons after that continued that standard or continued that precedent. Well, why? Because George Washington did it. And then, like you said, over time, it went from, well, George Washington and James Monroe and, uh, you know, President Roosevelt and FDR, they did all these things. That's why we do these things. That's, right. that's the reason. It, what we went from, we don't know what's going on. We don't know how to set the standard because we've never had a president before. So how does a lodge engage with a president Well, we've never had a president? To here's what George Washington did. Here's how he engaged. Here's the precedent that he set. And then here's how we all engage with the president's moving forward. That's one of the reasons why when Masons reached out to the president, they wrote, you know, your excellency and brother, or, you know, and there's hundreds of those types of letters where, excuse me, dozens of those types of letters where we know that Masons engaged with the president. That's the format that they used. That format is replicated with other Masonic presidents. That format is the reason why Masons went back to the presidents and said, Hey, by the way, we engage with your predecessors as Freemasons. We'd love to have an opportunity to come visit the White House and do these things. And then that's one of the reasons why they were allowed to come back or, or the White House was amenable to bringing them and participate in Masonic activities. So I think what is Washington's contribution? His contribution is he set the standard for how he engages with the fraternity. What does the fraternity do on our end? We value, we venerate, we support, we idolize, we bring him into the fold and say, he was a great Mason and a great man because of his virtues. Those are two different things. Those are two different distinctions. If if you get my meaning.
0: Sure. Yeah. No, that's a fantastic point. I'm actually really glad you mentioned that and kind of set back uh because you know i I fell victim with the the modern interpretation of washington and looking at you know okay outside of the the major you know public ceremonies you know it really wasn't all that active of a mason and that's you know how we judge masons today how active are you but that line you put right there if washington wasn't a mason what route would have masonry taken in the united states from that I've never looked at it from that perspective.
1: Here's another alter, or not an alternative, but here's another uh, uh, example of this, which I found yep. very interesting. John Adams, vice president, then becomes president of the United States. Washington has set the standard for how you engage as the president of the United States. He does the, we, you know, he, there are certain things here, there's certain customs, certain traditions. He set those up. John Adams, who never fought in a war goes to his inauguration with his, a sword attached to his hilt. Why would he do that? He is reasoning. Well, George Washington did it and came to his inauguration with a sword. So I'm going to do it as well. These are the types of things that he set a standard. John Adams would never be caught dead in military or engage with the military, but because George Washington did it, he thought it was appropriate for the president commander in chief to also do that as well. These are the types of things that George Washington set as the standard. And I don't think we have talked about those. You know, he when he picks up a mallet or a gavel or an apron, they are automatically, you know, miraculous archives that we need to, you know, miraculous items that we need to venerate and protect. But the fact that he did it, he didn't have to. He could have said, you know what, I'm too busy serving as president of the United States. I'm not interested in participating in these activities but he did it. There were surviving records of it. We knew how he felt about it. And I think, I think that we should step a little back from the modern interpretation and go back to, I think there's a little bit of a gray line there. Yes, he wasn't really active. Fine. But guess what he did when he wasn't in the office, he wrote well, he accepted invitations for important things like the cornerstone ceremony, the United States Capitol. So on the important things, he was there.
0: Yeah. No, I, I I can't argue with that one bit. You know, yeah. like I said, you you, you combat those. Uh, well, you know, he became a mason because in the time that's what you did if you wanted to get anywhere. You became a mason, but when you look at it from that perspective, man, if if he hadn't, correct, or he had embraced masonry the way he did. I mean, you look at Washington D.C. for one. To side tangent here, you know, as a Masonic history nerd like yourself, one thing I always try to tell people is. Freemasonry has a strong and proud and amazing history, but Freemasonry is not history like Freemasonry okay. sits separately in, in what it is. But I think because of our history, we've managed to hold on through some of those dire times we've right. managed to be accepted and embraced, uh, into the country in different aspects because of that history. And, Yeah. In George Washington's role, especially in that pivotal point of what is to become the nation we have today. Yeah. I mean, you talk ripple effect, it would have been completely
1: different. I think it would. And now I'm not really sure how far it would have gone, but I'm not, I'm I'm still, I'm still not sure. It It does make you wonder if John Adams, who was not necessarily the greatest fan of Freemasonry, I would be curious to know what Freemasonry would have looked like. Or he said, you know what, forget it. These guys are just a bunch of weirdos like George Washington, uh, you know, was a Mason too. Ah, forget it. I'm, I'm going to deal with, you know, other organizations. So yeah, it, it's just an interesting, you know, again, one of these things, when you synthesize hundreds of data points, like I am, and i thinking about oh, it, yeah. that was something that, that really resonated with me because I'm looking at how every other president engages with Freemasonry. And when every other president mentions George Washington, where every other president mentions Benjamin Franklin and all these interesting characters, then what what that tells me is look at their actions and tell me why it made such a big deal and why he has such resonance. Anyway, there's plenty of other things to talk about. So for example, here's another thing that we don't talk about. I wish we did, and in fact, we're talking about it more with this book and with some of my research, which I'm pleased about. If you are a Knights Templar and you get yourself a copy of the Knights Templar magazine, the latest, I believe it's the latest magazine, Ben Williams published an article, which I am very grateful for, on the White House. My my article on the White House inspection ceremony. So, if you could believe this, starting in Ulysses S. Grant's administration, Knights Templar and Knights Templar from across the country used to converge in Washington D.C. The Grand Commandery of the District of Columbia would invite, uh, or Masons or Commanderies actually. In fact, Grand Commandery. This activity predates the Grand Commandery of D.C. The, the commanderies that operated in DC at the time before there was a grand commander used to send out invitations to Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and Arkansas and all these different, and they would come, Masons and Knights Templar would come to the to District of Columbia, they would form a procession, they would march down Pennsylvania Avenue, sort of like what you see here in Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper, and they would, they would, Head to the White House. The guards at the White House would open up the gates. They would march through the White House gates over the portico or, or nearby the portico. The president, the secretaries, all Masons related to, you know, by affiliation would be there. And the president would acknowledge, you know, each commandery as they marched by. There was often music, and perhaps once in a while there would be a drill and, you know, ceremony that occurred. And then they would file out of the White House grounds, return back to the, um, the the Masonic Hall, and then go off and do another social activity or maybe go to a banquet or something. And this activity happened from Ulysses, as, starting in Ulysses S. Grant's administration, all the way to Herbert Hoover, after the 20, into the, well into the 20th century. And in fact, the last of these whites, White, white house templar inspection ceremonies occurred just two weeks after the stock market crash and dc Grand commandery got a little bit of flack for it and in fact hoover's administration got some flack for it that they decided okay clearly the president should be doing something more important than watching mason's march by should be focusing on you know the economy and all the things that are going on and so the dc Grand commandery actually shifted and said, we're going to do something a little different. No more marching on the White House. That's a little passe. And so they decided to switch over and do what they now call the Easter sunrise services. So they started this program of going to the National Amphitheater at the Arlington National Cemetery. And it was a non-denominational religious service that they would do on Easter morning, and they would invite the president. So Hoover you know, was more than willing to attend that ceremony because – It was, there's, it was more family friendly. It was more focused on, you know, a more positive sort of thing than Knights Templar and shiny chapeaus and, you know, our outfits marching on the Capitol or marching on the white house rather. Uh, Yeah. Now that ceremony got so big that the DC grand commandery passed it over to the grand encampment because they said, this is becoming too large presidents, United States white house um, first ladies are participating and so they shifted over and they basically gave it to the grand encampment to manage and so the Easter sunrise service eventually moved to the um, George Washington National Masonic Memorial when it was completed around the 1950s 1954 it moved over to the memorial uh, the, Washington, the George Washington Masonic Memorial and so now it's an annual event the grand encampment comes everyone flies in and, and there's this big event well where did it start it started with Ulysses S. Grant accepting and allowing Knights Templar from D.C. to watch them parade through the White House grounds as a little formal, informal, just, hey, we wanted to show you what the commanderies are doing in D.C. Here's what the Masons are up to. That's a story that's not told. And I, and I hope, you know, this is a story now that we're, we're talking about more often.
0: That's fantastic, yeah. Some of these photos, man, I've never even seen these. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, in fact, the District of Columbia had the first mounted commandery. Uh, the The Grand Encamener Knights Templar didn't even know what they were doing because they didn't even, you know, they. In fact, the the <laughs> it was called Malay Mounted Commandery Number Four. And when they really? got their charter, they were chartered as a mounted commandery. In order for you to be a member of the organization, you needed a mount. the 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 uh, dues were sky high, in addition to, of course, managing a horse. Imagine that. But, you know, yeah, it was a very unique and it was intended for these White House ceremonies because they wanted a police and a de- and a mounted escort along with uh, the other, the commanderies to participate in the White House ceremonies. So it was an organization based on the function of utility of, of attending and participating in these White House events. That's really cool. That is really, really cool, and and that's where actually that picture of the um of the White House uh, 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 the 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 photograph the postcard that I was showing in that original in the in the cover of the presentation that's where it came from. It came from one of those Knights Templar events.
0: Awesome. So yeah. now you mentioned this being a uh, a national or an annual event, I should say, mm-hmm.
1: and- or it was it was routine. It wasn't really annual. But okay. at least once or twice in an the administration, they would participate in this event.
0: So, is this something that still takes place today? And well, so, the, does the still come
1: out for it? The Easter sunrise service is absolutely something that occurs every year. Um, but a president has—I don't think a president's attended the Easter sunrise service since Harry Truman, I believe. Mm, actually, you know what? Oh. It might be even earlier. Now, I do know for sure that Eleanor Roosevelt participated, and that's actually one of the other uh, sections of the presentation. We don't really talk about the first ladies. You know, that's that's one of the things, or other staff. And so I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. I I can answer that question by yeah, telling yeah, yeah. you the next phase, but I'm happy to stop. And if you have another question, I can, I'm can. i happy to answer it.
0: No, nope, nope. Just a general okay. curiosity.
1: I'll let you roll. Yep, sure. So... Um, I'll answer that part in a second. So one of the things that I also discovered, which I really found very interesting and and certainly something that we don't talk about, starting in, it was um, Calvin Calvin Coolidge's administration. Uh, Calvin Coolidge opened up the House, the White House, to press conferences. Now the press and reporters were open and, and engaged with the president certainly way before that but it was under Coolidge's administration when they started the press question and answer session at the White House. And so at that time, they didn't have a press secretary. So it was just Coolidge opened his doors to to the reporters and he answered questions. And so in fact, one of the earliest sessions that they had, Coolidge was answering a question by a reporter if he was gonna attend the George Washington Masonic Memorial Cornerstone ceremony. Um, And so, you know, that was a fun little thing to find in the earliest records of the Coolidge administration. But the idea was that over time, the White House and the reporting staff really needed a record of what was going on in the White House, so they created these agendas and daily schedules for the Presidents of the United States. And so I started, and now most of them are all digitized, thank, thank God, and so I went through all of these calendars and agendas. And I said, well, certainly if a Freemason participated in you know an activity, um, then we can find it in the agendas or in the daily schedules. And so here's one of my favorites. It's a um, during the last weeks of Gerald Ford's administration, from 1150 to 11, 1224 nights, uh, not excuse me, not Knights Templar, the Grand Commander of DC and the Grand Council of DC, Royal Arch groups visited the White House. They went to the Teddy Roosevelt Room, they opened up a, 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 you know, a session of the Grand Chapter and the Grand Council, they walked across the hallway to the Oval Office, they arranged the Oval Office in a way that was you know, conducive to initiate the President, and they initiated the President into Freemasonry, well not just Freemasonry, but York Rite. so in the Royal Arch and the, the Cryptic Council. Now if you look there, 1150 to 1224, that's about 34 minutes. Now, I know people are talking, complaining about one-day conferrals. Imagine a 35-minute conferral and you're the President of the United States and you're in the Ola office. Not a bad way to do it. And so this was the photograph that reporters took after the ceremony. Reporters were obviously not allowed in the room during the initiation but they took a photograph, a group photograph with the president afterwards. And I was just like this little story, you know, that, that, that they did this. And so I went in and went through the grand chapter and grand commandery records to, uh, to try to find out uh, what happened that day. And so this is that's how I know the story. But the records are there. You can find these agendas all online and you can find Masonic activities where, right. you know, a state representative, for example, her, her husband was a Freemason and they were having a really tight campaign, you know, one of those midterm elections. And so as part of the campaign, they brought them the, the grand Master of the state over for a photo op because he was, you know, a Republican and they wanted to make sure that, you know, he was supported in his state. So it was one of these sort of, you know, things over time Freemasonry became political. It became seen as like, Hey, you know, especially in Gerald Ford's administration, they really tried to make sure that, you know, that, that we tried to use our Masonic assets appropriately to engage in politics. We don't talk about it. It's one of those things that happened. It's one of those unfortunate things that happened, but it certainly did happen.
0: That is fascinating. 34 minutes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> 34 minutes. Can't beat that. And that's Royal Arch and Cryptic Council. So. Good Lord. Yeah. And it's great. If it's, just a, it's certainly a photograph of the time. You can see the, the style, oh, yeah. but it's just, it's just wild. I wish I were there. You know, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be crazy to participate? And so these are members of the Grand uh, Chapter, Grand Council, and all the way on the very, very right end uh, of this picture is Marvin Fowler. And if you're familiar with the Allied Masonic degrees and the Royal Order of Scotland, Marvin Fowler was in charge of those organizations. In fact, he was the Provincial Grand provincial Master of the Royal Order of Scotland for 30 or something years. And so wow. that's Marvin Fowler on the right. Now at this time he was serving as the secretary slash, I think it was secretary treasurer of the George Washington Masonic national Memorial. And so that was, he was there representing DC and the Memorial, a nice photo anyway.
0: Oh yeah. Fantastic photo. And
1: so one of the last fun stories I'll share, and, and I did mention this before in our last podcast, but I think it needs. You know, talking about a little bit, one of the great yeah. joys of writing this book was during long stretches of times, you would have these people that I call informally the White House liaisons. They were the masons that basically set up the meetings in order to get the guys in the room and, 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 and really do all this work. And so the guy that I have a particular affection for is a gentleman named Benjamin B. French, who really was, in many ways, one of the earliest White House liaisons. French was a past Grandmaster of the District of Columbia. In fact, I think he served seven to eight years. So imagine a grandmaster serving more than a two- year term. You know, uh, it's sort of unheard of nowadays. But French was so popular, so active, so sort of just involved with anything that he was Grandmaster <clears throat> for seven years. In fact, he was the one that laid the cornerstone of Smithsonian and the um, washington memorial, the the, the obelisk. And so those are cool little things that he has under his terms as Grand Master of DC. Now the picture of French here is at the bottom right of is when during the Civil War he served as the Grand Master of the Grand Encampment of Knights Templar. During the entire administration for the for the for the six years he was in office he did it before the Civil War and it concluded in his term at the end of the Civil War so he was the Civil War Grand Master Um, and one of the cool things about serving as the grand master at the time, his official role during the Lincoln administration was he was the commissioner of public buildings. And in fact, he finds out that he was, or he got the job as commissioner of public buildings. So in his diary, which by the way, is at the the library of Congress, I'm actually working on digitizing and, and, and pulling out all of his Masonic activities. By the way, he's the one, this guy, Benjamin B. French is the one that gets albert pike his parole if french didn't get he, his parole then pike would have been just a random guy and well not really random he was still the uh, grand commander of the supreme council but he would have been stuck in canada and and in, you know in legal and terrible legal troubles but it was albert uh it was better french who got albert pike his commission it was also been french who initiated albert pike into the knights templar in washington commandery that commandery one of those commanderies that was marching on the white house and so, you know, Pike learned a lot about the Knights Templar through um, Benjamin B. French. Nevertheless, Benjamin v. French, the day he found out, he goes to the White House, Lincoln, you know, is there waiting for him, Mr. President, you know, is there an opportunity, you know, to serve in your administration? You know, I was the, I was the marshal of your inauguration parade. Um, I was the, you know, I'm the head of the Republican party in the, in the, in Washington, DC. Is there anything I can do, you know, in your administration? And, and Lincoln knew that French had previously served as the commissioner of public buildings in a, in a different administration. And so, well, he thought, you know, you know, Mr. French, I think there might be an option for you here. I think I've got one or two jobs for you, but you gotta give me a little bit more time because this morning I just, I just received word that Southern troops attacked Fort Sumter. And so kicking off what would eventually become the Civil War. And so I find a little bit of, when I was going through his diary, there was a little bit of an excitement in the air when I get to the chapter where French meets General Anderson, the guy who was at Fort Sumter at the White House. Anderson survives the bombardment. He comes to D.C. He has a state formal dinner with with Lincoln, and uh you know French is in the room he's sitting next to Mary Todd Lincoln in the dining hall or in the dining room and they're having these great conversations and after dinner they're sitting in the parlor you know perhaps drinks and a cigar and here's what French writes in his diary I was pleased to hear that General Anderson was a royal archmason and he's interested in joining the Knights Templar this is what French writes in his journal not it was such an amazing experience. And he was telling us all about, you know, Fort Sumter. He wrote that, that he took that time out of his, you know, that was what he focused on. In other words, he focused on Freemasonry. He focused on the interest. He focused on Anderson being a Royal Archmason and interested in joining the Knights Templar. That's what he saved for, you know, for posterity. And I just love that little story about French. Now, what (laughs) i am showing you in this picture right here is actually a picture of um the famous gettysburg address in fact the the guy who spoke before lincoln everett 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 what a great name reverend spoke for <laughs> 2 hours now french was there because he was invited by lincoln to participate in the gettysburg address or in the gettysburg dedication ceremony as a marshal and in fact i'm not sure if you can see my my um my mouse here but if you go about 5 or 6 people to your right of Lincoln. If you know where Lincoln's sitting, you'll see French with his little sash. French uh, contributed a song that was sung, the song that was sung during the dedication. And my favorite little story about that, there's another story about that. My favorite little story about Gettysburg is, well, if you're familiar with the Gettysburg site, you now today there's hotels, there's places to go, there's shops to visit. It's, It's a great place to go. But back then when they were dedicating the the, uh, you know, dedicating the cemetery, there was very little rooms of it. You know, there's no hotel in Gettysburg. They bombed out half of the, you know, half of the city or actually more than half of the city. And so French was so relieved that he had, he was able to lean on a Masonic contact to find a warm bed to sleep the night during the trip because there were wow. so many people coming into town. He didn't have, uh, he didn't know anyone, but he was able to get secure, uh, just a, a bed to sleep in that night before the event because a Mason was able to help him out. And in fact, that Mason's house was right next door to the head of the committee that was inviting Lincoln to come over. And so there was this great story in the journal where Lincoln didn't also have a place to stay. So he stayed with the guy who invited him. And then they all went next door and hung out with French in that Mason's the old Mason's house. And they just chatted away. And in the evening, he writes that, you know, as we were going to bed, I could hear the distance out in the outside. There were chanters, carolers outside singing for the president and French out his door. What a great little story! Wow. And it was because because Freemasonry. Freemasonry brought those you know guys yeah. together. Um, see, these are the types of stories we don't talk about. You know about these guys in the White House that served as these sort of liaisons to bring people in. Um, and so there's plenty of more stuff on on French in the book, but I think he highlighted to me, you know, this idea of Freemasonry up in front of center. People knew about Freemasonry. He was very active, and he w- he wasn't shy about his affiliation. You know, as as a as a guy working in the White House as a Grand Master of Knights Templar, he was not shy about his uh, you know affiliation. Uh, in fact, later on, he would be the one that starts bringing in the Scottish Rite, the Supreme Council, often visited the White House during biennial sessions. He was the one that helped set it up during, with Andrew Johnson. Um, in fact, B. French was the one that initiated Andrew Johnson into the Scottish Right degrees for the 32nd uh, at the White House. It was a private ceremony. He had dinner with another, with another SGIG because French at the time became the SGIG of DC. I, I suspect it's because Albert Pike wanted to thank him for all he did. Um, and so he became SGIG of DC. And so, you know french has this great legacy in, in the district of columbia not a lot of people know about it so it, it was one of the great joys to write about french in the book and and have other people like yourself learn more about french
0: that is fascinating you yeah. know one, one aspect i gotta stress to people out there like listening to you going through your research and actually reading through the diaries yeah if you guys out there get the chance don't just read the like typed up version Go find the scans of yeah. diaries, I, whether it's these situations or just any Masonic diary or any historical diary read from their own handwriting. Yes. There's nothing else like it. You, you right. get this, I, you mentioned the odd connection there and it sparked with me. Cause I felt that it's weird. Yeah. You do not get that connection any other way. Go read these guys, actual yeah. handwritings. And it, it just comes to life in a special way.
1: I will say I don't think I ever ever mentioned this, but I I took a couple days off of work to go to the Library of Congress to to do some research on French's diary because his papers, his work is all there. Um, and going through it, I did get a little emotional after the end of his diary when he died because he he wrote all the way up till his death, and, I, and yeah. it was because I just read this guy and I, I sort of felt like I was intimately aware of his life and. His most interesting, so interesting Masonic activities. I mean, he was one of the most well-known Masons in the in the country. Yeah. He and and the fact that he just had such a curious life, there's, oh, we went off and saw Charles Dickens, like the real Charles Dickens at a play. And then the next thing he goes, well, and then I ran off to the you know to the Masonic Hall to to do some, you know, work and to do some business as a past grandmaster of DC. Like he intertwined Freemasonry so well. He found a way. Of entertaining it so well, where he brought prestige and respect to the craft, but also then did it for good things. He engaged with the White House. He engaged on these charitable efforts. He, you know, was one of the first people to support Abraham Lincoln and move over. You know, he, he at the time he was so disinfa- disassociated or disinterested in the Democrats that you know he thought maybe Lincoln and the Republican Party has a good thing going here about freeing the slaves, and he was very vitriolically anti-slavery. To the right. point where he was really annoyed, and 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 you know, and he also, one of the things was so mi- miraculous, I guess, to me was he played so well with former anti-Masons. You'd think mm-hmm. that some of these anti-Masons, like William Seward, who was Lincoln's Secretary of State, William Seward and Benjamin French were good friends. William Seward started his career trying to get rid of the anti-Masons. And here he is with Benjamin French. They're taking a train up to Massachusetts to attend a cornerstone laying ceremony of of the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. I mean, those are the kinds of things that you see in this diary. And I just found it so cool and interesting. And I did get a little emotional after his death. I was like, man, this guy had such a lived a great life, you know,
0: I, I don't, I don't doubt that one bit. And that's why I'm saying like transcripts are amazing. Yeah, But if you can find the scans and actually read a person's handwriting, it, it adds in this like level of life. And, yes. you know, I can say when we were going through all the minute books for my lodge to, to write the history book there, my wife was helping me. Um, cool. She would actually read the pages and I would, you know, notate all the important oh, spots nice. that I can go back. And of course, you know, going through decades of minutes, you'd hear about those prominent names within the lodge and you, you know. Right main speaker the guy that kind of runs everything and you right. hear these people you know year after year reading these and we got to one spot i think it was one of the hayden brothers which the hayden family is uh still active in the lodge today but oh. this, you know generations back uh but we got to the part where you know he got ill with cancer and then they announced that he had passed away and my wife just burst into tears and it caught me off guard but it was like yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we've just gone through this guy's entire life. I mean, we went from reading when he was initiated <laughs> and then you know getting to the point where the Lodge
1: reports his death. And it's it's real on a different level. It is, it is. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think I think we don't do enough work digitizing records like now, sure. I'm in DC, there's a lot of Masonic stuff, fine, but to me, one of the things I, I'm sort of excited about is learning of these other lodges. Every other lodge is just as important as any DC lodges. And it has its own history, it has its own interesting thing. You know, the members of your lodge, for example, or any brother that's listening to this presentation, could have been the founders of a town or state senators or or even senators or even congressmen or and mayors and they had such interesting lives, they conducted such interesting work. And so to me, digitizing that stuff is so important to get it out there, to get it in front of other people, to get it in front of future generations who may take it, compile something with it and give it to a historical society or a state historical yeah. society or partner with, you know, a historical society to share this information. And that's by the way, how you get involved in the community. You know, historical societies would love to get your information or love to get, now I'm not saying that in a, in a sort of negative context, I meant there's opportunities where we can share this information, go, Oh, you're so-and-so lived here forever. They may not know that they, he was a Mason and then he contributed all this charity and all this relief work. And so I think there, it opens up so many opportunities.
0: Most definitely, there there's so much in there, you know. That's why with Kansas Lodge Research, we we've uh, had the opportunity to kind of spark this through a bunch of jurisdictions. But we're sending these kits out. Lodges are digitizing, but within that, it's becoming OCR content searchable, and then we're building this database. And hopefully, in the future, we'll be able to take our database and databases from brothers in Massachusetts and DC, yeah, link those. So then you can go from a content search. Look up a name or a, a subject matter, and you start getting hits from all across the country. And at that point, we will see Masonic education be able to connect the dots like never before. I mean, think about political figures that may have traveled around, or right. you know, members that you know worked in the White House that you know impacted this or that that happened to come to Gardner or something like that. Exactly. Uh, stuff like that you would never have the opportunity to connect those dots before. And it's coming, it's coming fast, but we have to do the work to make it possible. Agreed. Well, my brother, we're at the top of the hour, which we typically do a traditional toast. I was going to see if you would offer up a toast and then we'll have some
1: final words. Hmm. Traditional toast. Okay. Well, uh, why don't we do to a toast to those brothers and uh, their families who served the White House, served the government, and found ways of engaging with Freemasons. So to a toast to those brothers. To
0: those brothers, I love it. Cheers. Cheers. That is fantastic. Brother, I have learned so much from you this evening. It's, you're one of those guys I could definitely talk to for hours on end, and we would just <laughs> you know, be at the tip of the conversation for sure. Yes.
1: Well, if there's an opportunity to come to Kansas and do a larger research presentation, I'm not going to say no. How about that? You
0: got to make it happen. We've got to. (laughs) Well, I need to know, man, how can we
1: get a hold of this book? So uh, I hope you can share a link. So if you go on chrisruly.com, that's the easiest way to go because that'll take you to purchase the book. But I did share a link with you, Brother Alex, that you're more than welcome to share Uh, And you can purchase it online, you can purchase it through Amazon, you can purchase it through the McCoy website. There is another special link, though, that if you use that link, um, you can like submit autograph instructions and I'll sign your book and then it'll be mailed out to you. So if you're interested in that, if anyone wants an autographed copy, I'm happy to facilitate that as well.
0: We will make sure to get that link in the show notes. Uh, I will definitely be grabbing a copy. I cannot wait to dig through it. I've got a nerdy question, though. Sure, please. In the very beginning of this, you were kind of a jerk, and you teased me at the fact. Yes, a jerk, because you cut down this amazing, you said like five to 600-page document. Ah, yes, the really cut. Yeah, so for for absurd nerds like myself,
1: will there ever be a uncut version released? Well, here's the thing. What I did do was the, so what I did do is I included all those notes and things in the bibliography. So if you want to go see the full transaction, you know, so for example, the cornerstone links the cornerstone length ceremony for the Washington monument, there was like three or four pages in the newspaper. I transcribed it all. I put it on the page. You know, we had to cut that whole thing down to a paragraph. So if you go into the newspaper, you can find the original. I I send you a link to it so you can or, uh, you know, the the, the reference to it. So you can go find the original and read the original. So I'm not sure the six hundred. There's so many other projects that I'm working on right now. So I can I'm happy to give you a tease and let you know that my publisher is already working on book number two, which is a similar type of book. It's on the Marquis de Lafayette. Lafayette came to the United States in 1824, 1825. I can tell you right now, the best research on all of Masonic activities for Lafayette maybe captured about 15 Masonic activities. I found 60, and I'm compiling them all into a good book. And so to commemorate Lafayette's arrival in the United States next year, which will be his 200th anniversary, bicentennial, we uh, we are trying to get the book out. So people can learn more about the Marquis Lafayette and his activities. It's great stuff.
0: That is fantastic, brother. It has been an immense pleasure and I cannot wait to read this book and hear about that future one. And maybe we can twist your arm a little bit and get you back on the show to talk about that subject matter when you deem that time fit.
1: Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Alex. And thank you as always for what you're doing for your podcast. Uh, it's very popular. I see all the Patreon stuff happening. So you do certainly one of the best podcasts around on the topic, and I'm always pleased that you allow me to join your uh, great podcast. So thank oh, you. Pleasures, pleasures,
0: all mine, brother. It has been a thrill with you this evening. Please tell your family hello. Tell them thank you for letting us steal you away for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> with that, brother, I can't wait to chat again with you soon. Thank you, everybody, for joining in live. And until next time, keep preserving the history of Freemasonry. We'll see you later.